we are activating your unique self-discovery one show at a time. The Orchard of Wisdom Self-Discovery Podcast are at your fingertips, just waiting to inspire and invite you in discovering just how awesome you really are and how to navigate through life in joy, enrichment, personal abundance, in mind, body, spirit, heart and soul. All the people we bring you are here to serve you on your journey of life. Do enjoy our next show. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of For the Love of Music, right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is James Campion. He certainly has a love of music. He's just written a book, Take a Sad Song and Make It Better. Well, Take a Sad Song. We do like to make it better because that's what the message is all about from Hey Jude. We're going to be talking about the Beatles music today, but also his love of music and why he looks for the meaning in it. And uh, he has a podcast where he actually does discuss what do does the music say to us? What are the words trying to say to us? And we know that the Beatles, you know, it doesn't matter what era you are in their music means something to us wherever we are at whatever stage of life and whoever we are um, it's transcending that uh, brilliance quite honestly of wonderful connection to heart and soul he says the emotional currency of hey jude drives deeply into the song's origins recording visual presentation impact eventual influence while also discovering what makes hey jude a classic musical expression of personal comfort and societal unity conceived by master songwriter paul mccartney Within its medallic brilliance and lyrical touchstones of empathy and nostalgic resides McCarthy's personal and professional relationship with his childhood friend and songwriter partner, John Lennon, and their simultaneous pursuit of the woman who would complete them. They are also, also they are soaked. They are also cues to the growing turmoil within the Beatles and their splintering generations scarred by war, assassinations, and uh, virtual protests. You know, we're really quite honestly, we could be talking about this era right now. Violence, war, protest, does it ever change? And, and music is a wonderful way to reflect. It is the poetry of our time to reflect where we're at, how we feel, what we want to see come, you know, the answers. Um, but are we listening? because they wrote these songs back in the 60s and it was a protest then and uh, it was a way to connect then it was a way for us to go into ourselves and truly listen and listen to each other and here we are decades later pretty well still singing the same songs and we're still in the same war zones and protest and everything else are we not learning from the music james <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Sarah. Um, that's a loaded question, no pun intended. Uh, uh, that, you know, it's funny. I do think that there's two parts of music that I love the most. It reflects its times, uh, but also it, it goes beyond the times. Mm -hmm. The like Hey Jude underlines that. And the year I spent with Hey Jude in a very, to use the term that you use there in the promotion of the book, a tumultuous year of 2020, it was my pandemic book. Mm -hmm. And I wondered a lot, a lot of quite a bit in the book, but also in my pursuit of understanding Hey Jude and all the songs that move us, how much that does reflect what we're going through. And as you mentioned, you know, new human nature as it is, each generation passes. And the older I get, and I'm going to be 60 in September, 
the older I get, the more I realize that the change that we all thought was permanent in the 70s is not. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see that here in America, certainly over the last couple of months specifically. And also you see it globally. Mm -hmm. um, you see it in just, again, it's not an American thing. It's not a Western thing. Uh, it's a human thing. It is. And, I, and I think that's the great thing about music is that it does speak to our humanity. It invites us to step into humanity. Yes. And it begs us to step into humanity. I mean, all the songs on love is to step into love for love is the answer. You know, because when you're in a vibration of love, you can't willingly do any harm to anyone else. Uh, because you're in an, an ethereal of a love that is about kindness and caring. Right? Right. So, you know, we have all of these songs based in, in learn to love, have someone to love, love yourself. You know, love is the answer. But somehow or other, we, we keep listening to these songs. But is it really being absorbed? Are we listening to apply? Well, that's that's the great thing for me about Hey Jude is it, it, it's the general positivity of it. As Paul mm -hmm. says, and I quote him in my book as saying, you know, I'm really glad looking back at the Beatles canon, how we always talked positively for the most part, love songs and positivity mm -hmm. and it flows from there. But more to your point, Hey Jude is different than the giant grandiose platitudes of say, all you need is love or imagine mm -hmm. or give, give peace a chance, which of course, John Lennon, Paul's great, uh, songwriting partner and, and, and um, childhood chum uh, wrote in those songs. Hey Jude is sort of the brother of those songs or the sister or, or, or kin, but there's something specific about Paul's singular, you could do this. Yeah. Love yourself, believe in yourself, and you could take that next step. Mm -hmm. And I, and I quote the, the, the famous Gandhi book in my, uh, uh, the quote in my book about uh, be the change that you want to see. Yes. So it starts with you first and you take that singular step. And uh, I thought that was very unique because Paul uses the second person in the song. He's speaking to the mythical Jude. Mm -hmm. And in essence, he's speaking to us. He's speaking to his bandmates. He's speaking to his generation. And he's he's imploring the idea of vulnerability, which mm -hmm. is tough for young men to understand, especially young men like the Beatles, who are so popular, they had to put on shields in a way masks they couldn't be quote-unquote human they were greater than human uh, and paul in a way is saying let's not forget our humanity if you want to be able to love you have to be vulnerable enough to take on pain yes derision mm -hmm. uh you know confusion i've always thought that confusion is a is an underrated term i think most of our great philosophers or even religious or spiritual teachers talk about the you know if you if you allow yourself to not think you have all the answers, mm -hmm. to be intellectually and spiritually curious, then you can allow those things to come in. And I, and I, and, oh, 100% agree with that. And, and, and I, I know I'm getting a little lofty here. Sarah, no, 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 no. You're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> okay, good. But I think, and I'm just, all I'm really doing is reflecting what I learned from all the philosophers and all the, um, the professors and songwriters and writers and Beatle historians who all contributed to my book to try to figure out why not just Hey Jude, but how songs affect us and how, as you said, we can apply that to our lives and better humanity. Yeah, um, you know, the confusion, the word confusion, where does the confusion come from? It is when the mind doesn't know how to make sense out of something. Mm. That actually, when we actually listen to kind of the, the heart and the soul and the spirit of us, 
Mm -hmm. Clarity is always there. So if we come from that space, the clarity will be in the mind. We won't have the confusion, but the confusion comes from the outside static and the pressures and the noise and the dictation and the repression. And we get confused of what is important, what isn't important. Um, should I apply this? Should I rise to this? Should I, should I, should I, should I? And we right. get confused. But if we truly listen to our heart, which I feel is really what the Beatles were all about, they sang and wrote from the heart. And they, yes, wanted, they wanted to ignite the hearts, the souls and the spirits and others. And said, if you listen to this, if you listen to this and let it be, you, mm -hmm. will, not, you will have the clarity. But you know, if we live just in thought, we're never going to find that clarity because too many buts come up. Right. What ifs come up? And you know, I say, sit on the butt, allow, let it be, let it come to you, right? You know, and, yes. and even if you are in pain, go through the pain. The pain's there for a reason. It's not meant to be easy, easy, but it gets easier when you allow yourself to feel the pain and go through it rather than holding on to the pain and being confused by it. Right. As the Buddha says, you know, life is pain. Yes. Well, understanding the pain, it's also joy, but that's the, I guess, the, to use another Eastern term, the yin and the yang of it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm also reminded of uh, Paul's line in the song, um, you know, when you feel the pain, hey Jude, refrain. Mm -hmm. But also he sings, let it out and let it in. Uh, yes. A wonderful young songwriter, uh, Kylie Lotz, goes by the name of Petal. Uh, she was one of the songwriters I interviewed in the book, and she said, Think about it for a minute. Let it out and let it in. Mm. It's, it's breathing, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> but it's also it's also the Beatles. I chapter I, I, I titled the chapter a very brief history of the Beatles because I didn't have a lot of time in there. And I figured, you know, everyone knows the story, but you, you can't be sure. This whole new yep. generations is I, I, I titled it Let It Out and Let It In, because in the way the Beatles let out this incredible joy, mm. these wonderful songs with these 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 infectious harmonies and melodies. And they let in the incredible adoration of Beatlemania. And in a way, on a negative side, it almost really killed them. Mm. And it certainly sucked a lot of the life out of them as people, which is why they get off the road. But it also infused them. Uh, Paul often says, we wrote songs for our audience. A thank you, girl. I want to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. And so when Hey Judy's saying, you have found her, now go and get her. He's speaking in the second person to the, again, the mythical Jude, but he's not preaching. He's right. not overbearing. No. He's not getting in your ear. He's encouraging. Then, he's encouraging. And then when he sings things like letter under your skin, getting mm. back to the vulnerability. Yes. I think one of the philosophers in my book said, come on, think about that. Whenever you hear something getting under your skin, it's like an irritant. Mm -hmm. Paul's using it in a different way. Let it into your DNA. Yes. And then let's let the love in, right? Yes. Let it immerse in, right? Indeed. Yes. yes. Uh, we've become very defensive people. You know, we've, we're more on the defense of prove it. I don't trust it. Um, you know, it, it, we've become very skeptical. And if we do actually truly listen to the words, listen to the music and really let it soak in, it would really open us back up into, you know, because negativity begets negativity. Right, and, right. And, and that is just the, the law of attraction. So what you feed is going to grow. Yes, right? and I, yes, 100%. And let me just say this. I'm sorry to interrupt you there no. for a moment. Uh, you know, I think it was Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone in my book that said, this song is subversive. Think about it for a minute. It's getting in somehow, sort of Trojan horsing this mm. idea in a beautiful melody and also in a second person discussion that Paul's having. 
And it's also giving us the idea. See, I'm one of, I, mea culpa, I'm one of those people who can be skeptical mm-hmm. and can question everything. And, mm-hmm. it, and it keeps me alive. I never yes. want to feel like I have all the answers. But there is a part of me that when you do that, intellectually, like you said, uh, a, a, a comma but comes in, yeah. like you said, and now you want to know everything. You want to know more about it, which I think is great for a writer mm-hmm. and a journalist, but it also sometimes separates us from just allowing ourselves to to just let, and that's why music for me, I've had a lot of people write me and say, you know, you can be rough in, when you discuss social uh, or politics or, or all the things that go on in the world. But when you talk about art, film, mm-hmm. or uh, this is people writing to me or music specifically, it's almost like you lay down a little of your defenses and you allow the music to move you. Move you. And because I, that's I what music does. It yeah, moves that's us. that's what it does. It <laughs> yes. sure as hell does. Yes, it does. It, it's a healer. Um, it's a reflection. It, it's a voice that we can't find. And it's an expression that we don't know how to express. It is the answer that we didn't even know we had the question to. Ah, yeah. yes. You know, yes, it, and- that's the beauty of music. Whether, whether there are lyrics to it or not, you know, the music itself, actual just music without lyrics even, literally can go in and recalibrize your equilibrium. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, and, I, and the musicologists in my book said that, and I, I think I used this analogy, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, the great director, obviously, uh, once said that if you watch my films with that, the sound, you should mm-hmm. get the same emotion from it. And that's what the musicologist said about Hey Jude. If you just listen to way Paul is phrasing the melody and you listen to the chords underneath, how they, you know, in musical terms, they're very dissonant structures of the song. Anytime he sings something that is, take a sad song, he goes down, but he goes back up, mm-hmm. you know, and he comes back down. He's taking us on a roller coaster yes. ride with just the melody. And if you just listen to the music, it will take you on. It, it is a, what I call later on in the book comfort and unity. The comfort part is the Hey Jude, sort of a pep talk, encouragement, as you said. And then later on, when they all sing Na Na Na, it's the unity. Now let's all get together and sing a song. A song, by the way, or a melody, by the way, or a coda, by the way, that does not have words that are specific to any language. It's just Na 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 Na. And when he sings it, it's so infectious and everyone wants to sing it. I saw him back in 89 and it happened. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago in Syracuse when he just did his latest tour and when he just plays the piano and mm-hmm. the full room is singing that yes. you get the feeling of what he meant when he wrote it right and the fact that it goes on for so long yes. i remember when it first came out there was criticism on that but now you understand why it hooks you in yes. you can't help but become a part of it it is mm-hmm. the invitation to become a part of that community to become come together yeah, very good. Very good. And, and you know, I felt the same way. So I never felt that way about uh, the Nanas because I write in my book about how I used to sing that when I was five years old to help me fall asleep. So I, I, they can sing that for 20 minutes as far as I'm concerned. But I do get the criticism because when I first heard the full version of Give Peace a Chance, that goes on for like eight minutes. Yes. And there's only three verses and each verse is about 30 seconds. Yes. So about six minutes of them over and over again. And I must say, all right, I get it already. But you know what? That's me in 1979, 1982, 1990, 2022 saying that. What it meant to John and Yoko, what it meant to 1969 and all those kids coming home dead from mm-hmm. Vietnam. 
it meant the it meant everything. Keep saying it. Keep saying it. We'll say it till we're blue in the face. Give peace. Well, we actually do know that it takes at least eight positives to undo one negative. Oh, I'd have never heard that. So I like that. this repetitiveness is subliminally going into the psyche and literally changing the mindset. Yes. Yeah. It's a mantra. Yes. I refer to it. And you mentioned before, I didn't want to let this go because you, you, you kind of reminded me of it, that uh, I, was, I always looked at the Beatles' time with the Maharishi as sort of negative in a way. Mm -hmm. It didn't really work out for them. They were talking a lot of Eastern philosophies and they were really talking out of their posteriors for a lot of it because <laughs> they just didn't know. But they, they said, okay, uh, Christian Western philosophy and religion failed us or it didn't do stuff for us. And then there was this whole movement in the 60s to get to more Eastern philosophies, yes. but more secular philosophies. So they went to the Maharishi and, and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. But I thought it was fascinating that Paul, who was often seen as the guy who was kind of, eh, we thought mm -hmm. this guy had something to say, but what are you going to, we made a mistake, which was his first original at 25 years old reaction to that. But over the years, and I read it in his biographies and I put it in my book, he realized he still does the mantra he learned from the Maharishi. And there was something the Maharishi said to him that stuck with him. And that is the quote, and I quoted a few times in my book, the heart goes to the warmer place. Yes. And that's what Hey Jude does. It says, yes, take that heart and find the place you have found her. Yes. Now go and get her. You yes. can substitute her, which I would never do because obviously John found Yoko mm -hmm. and Paul found Linda around that time. Mm -hmm. But if you, you substitute, and I've never said this in any of the interviews I've done, and I think you've brought it out of me, Sarah, is the <laughs> sense where if you found it, now mm -hmm. go and get it. Yes. Or if you found you, go yeah. and get you. You know, it is all about discovery. Yes. Yes, it is. Whatever it is you are meant to discover. And, you know, again, if we can get out of the dictation of what it is we're meant to discover and allow and take the path, what we need to discover will be in front of us. But we have to give the free will and we have to be willing to receive. Yes. And, and, and if you if you remember, and I know a lot of people know this story, but just for your listeners, Paul wrote this song to comfort young Julian the son of John Lennon, when he left his family, mm -hmm. Cynthia, his wife, who they was breaking off for a while. They married so young at 2021 20, yeah. uh, because she became pregnant. And Julian was the same age as John was when his father left him. Mm. And, and Paul and John both lost their mothers young. So Paul had a great empathy for Julian. And he was sort of like his surrogate son. In fact, Julian, as an adult, has said, I only have pictures of, of Uncle Paul and me playing. And, and Paul never fails to send him a Christmas card and a birthday mm. card every year. And so the story goes, you know, Paul drives out an hour out of his way on a late June uh, summer day in, in 1968 to comfort Julian. And he's singing, hey, Jules, mm. you know, don't make it bad. Take a sad song. It's so sweet. Yes. And when you think of the origins of that, mm -hmm. then everything you just says, you just said there comes alive. The idea of believe in yourself, you could get through this. There are better times ahead, but only if you believe it, if you take that first step to, to healing. And it's so, it must be, you know, mind boggling for a young child to hear, but it's even tough enough for you and I to hear. Uh, well, quite honestly, that's what an awful lot of the platform of my shows are about. They're about the hay discovery. You know, they're about uh, letting yourself in, right? They're, they're about sure. letting it be. A lot of, we could take the titles of pretty well all of these songs and it would could be a song in itself, you know, don't let me down, don't let yourself down. You know? right. uh, but you, one of the songs that really uh, has always had an effect on me, right from a, a child in boarding school listening to this for the first time, was Eleanor Rigby. Um, I, do you know much about that song? I sure do. 
I actually covered it in the book because it shows Paul's empathy to put his feet yes. in the shoes of not only other people, but women. Uh, yes. Lady Madonna, the single mother struggling. Who, what rock star in the 1960s is writing a song from the perspective right. of a single mother? Who's writing a song called Your Mother Should Know? Give her a break. This woman's been around. She raised you. Don't be so hard on her. I know we're all saying don't trust anyone over 30, but our parents <laughs> are over 30 and they took care of us and they care about us. And then yes. of course, Eleanor Rigby. This incredible song. I think I one know. of the philosophers in my book said, one last thing, I know you probably want to say something about this because I'm dying <laughs> to hear your thoughts, but you got me going on Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. He said that Paul talks, really does a great job in time. Mm. He goes back, whether it's when I'm 64 or a long and yes. winding road. I mean, for a 26, 27 year old man to write the long and winding road reminds me of Joni Mitchell at 21 writing both sides now. What the heck does Joni Mitchell at 21 know about? Because they're, they're an old soul. It's There's got nothing to do soul. with a chronicle age. You know, right, it's, they, they've channeled the wisdom from the universe, right? I, right? It is beyond the years. But, you know, I mean, you know, one of the, the lines here, all, look at all the lonely people. Yeah. And, you know, the, one of the things that um, I think that is really prevalent in the world today is that we actually have more lonely people in a world where there is more access to communication than ever ever before and you know like you know picking up the rice where the wedding has been you know uh he lives in a dream what's at the window wearing the face that keeps you know it keeps in a jar by the door who is it for you know all the lonely people do we we've become again so kind of jaded we don't see the lonely people and the other thing we don't realize we've become the lonely people right yeah. well that gets back to john's and john helped paul with the lyrics of that and i love the fact that J paul helped john with in my life, which is a very, again, retrospective song uh, about his life. Again, a young man looking back on his life and it mm -hmm. seems so silly to us now, a much older, but those guys were old souls. But yes, I mean, those, that imagery is so connecting because I'm, I'm often reminded about how much, where the Beatles came from. John was born in 1940 and, and Paul was born in, born in 42. Uh, during the bombings of mm -hmm. London during World War II and how close Western civilization came from dictatorship and hatred yes. and genocide and uh, how everyone blossomed out of that. The Beatles represent this new breath for me. And so when they do write a song about loneliness mm. and when they do use those, and you know, those are really striking imagery, you're, you're, you're more apt to listen because yes. they're not coming from a, a dour or a more mm -hmm. solemn place. They're coming from a, a sunshiny place. So when the, the fun-loving mop tops tell you, take a moment and look around you, there are people who are not yes. in the middle of the summer of love. Right. They're not opening up and being free. They're being trapped yep. by something, you know, and uh, yes. Wonderful, wonderful example. Great job. In yeah. 10 years I've been doing this and the years that I've, I've uh, been um, helping people, counseling people, um, one of the core things is loneliness. And that loneliness is because they don't feel a connection with self and they don't know how to connect to others. Because people, so many people are living the um, societal's expectation of what they should be rather than the divine presence of who they are on the divine essence of who they are. And you know, the whole thing about life is our self-discovery to know who we are, why we're and what we're here to do. What is our instrument? How do we play it? Which orchestra do we join? And that uh, it can be a lonely road in that discovery. 
And mm. you know, most people do come from the loneliness until they discover who they are, what their purpose is, what that instrument is. Now they can join that orchestra where they feel they have a connection and they belong. But it is actually a part of the, the growth of life. We're all looking to belong somewhere. Yes. But we can't belong until we belong to ourselves. Yeah, I tell my young nieces, you know, when they say, well, you know, I'm in high school, they're all off to college, many of them. And I said, you'll find your tribe. Mm -hmm. You'll find that tribe, the people that connect to you. We, we're all trying to look for that. And I'm also reminded, Sarah, of, you know, I, 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 because I write a lot about Paul's mom and the empathy he got from her. She was a nurse and, and a wonderful woman. And I, I've often quoted and, and uh, said, and I wish I put it in my book, but I, I say it in all these interviews, that she was the paragon of womanhood. She was so mm. selfish, so selfless. She, she was so caring. But yet she was also the main breadwinner, which was right. odd in the 1950s, especially yes. in Northern England. And I'm reminded of my mom who kind of kept our whole family together and, and was a homemaker, but, but, you know, was so smart about why she went through life. And she just lost her husband a couple of years ago, my dad, and how she's going through loneliness now in a different way. Yeah. Obviously she's alone now, but she, she was so used to giving, giving, giving all the yeah. time. She doesn't have that around. She has to rediscover. And she says it, I have to rediscover how I'm going to, live my life. And, and I, I, I just thought of that when you mentioned uh, that part of what you were saying. I know, so, you know, the message there that it's never too late to make that discovery. Yes. You know, there are, we are so many chapters in our book of life. And when a chapter comes to the end, it's not the end of your story. It's just the beginning of a new chapter. Yes. And yes. what is this, okay. this chapter going to be? Well, it's up to, up to your experience. Are you willing to experience it? Are you willing to let it in? Are you willing to step out? Are you yeah. willing to embrace and to really see what's around you and be a part of life instead of just spectating life or dreaming about it? Yes. And I do want to say, you know, I've said this a lot in interviews and sometimes when I listen back to the interviews, I say, damn, why don't you be more specific about it? I want to make this point. I've said many times that I think, hey, Jude is different than all you need, a all you need is love, which is more of a platitude. Even though I love all you need is love, I, I, I connect more with, hey, Jude, because it's, it's a personal, hey, you could do this. Yes. But I often say, I, and I use examples as say what Paul is saying is you don't need these these aphorisms or these platitudes, these self-help books or the, the drugs or the, the mm. religion. Or, but I don't want to also begrudge the fact that people do connect to religion and they yes. do need philosophy. Each their and own. they do need yeah. therapy and they do need yes. some medication. I'm not. But trust me, what I'm telling you, I'm not saying that. Right. But even coming to the grips with the idea that you need these things is a way of self-discovery. It is. It is. Yeah. What is it do you, you need in your life to be whole in your life? When you are whole, you actually are stepping into purpose to service. That actually um, really expands that uh, whole wholeness because now you are sharing of you. So the, you know, being abundant and letting your cup runneth over benefits everybody, you and everyone else. Yeah. Being you know, deprived, what have you got to give? So, you know, yeah. the, you know you know, his mom's generation, even my mom's generation, even my generation, I'm 67. It was about, no, no, you've got to give and give and give until you drop. Right. right? And, you know, there is no just suck it up and, and pick yourself up again, where that's completely turned around now, where we are saying to people, you know, it, you need to be as much as you can be do for you so that you can be abundant and help others oxygenate yourself you can't help anyone if you're gasping for breath well you listen i use that all the time what do they tell you when you're an airplane yeah. 
When it drops, put it over your face first. Otherwise, you can't help. You can't help anybody if you pass out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So and and this is more of the era now that we are actually beginning to understand that. That our yeah. own personal abundance isn't narcissism or isn't greed. It, it is that abundance that comes from within you that then exudes out. And why yeah. do we love musicians? Because they're sharing that inner abundance, that yeah. inner wisdom. They're sharing it out and hoping that it trickles down to you and everyone else around you, that, that sharing of it. And again, how many decades since they started? What is it, uh, 60? <laughs> it's 60 yeah. decades now. Right, right. Uh, well, oh, six decades, right? Not 60, six decades sure, now. Sure, sure. I, I'm, I'm, you know, you just reminded me of the great Sam Cooke song, A Change Is Gonna Come, which one of the professors talked about being a subversive song in a sense where it's not it's it's not a specific protest song literally it talks about any change if you're open for it there's nothing in there that says we are being oppressed mm -hmm. we shall overcome civil rights is not mentioned in it the black experience mm -hmm. is not mentioned in it but yet it's all of those things yes and i find that again paul's secular gospel song a song that has gospel phrasing in it musically and lyrically, a song that has more at the end, the namaz is longer than the actual structured song in which he is quite rightly screaming and testifying the way Sam Cooke did in The Soul Stirs mm -hmm. in the 1950s. But I am reminded of a, a change is going to, come, going to come because it has an incredible ability to get those messages across. And that's why I think we love, you know, it always amazes me that people will say, well, I wish artists would just shut up and make songs. Well, the songs are the thing that's not shutting up. No. If they have something to expound on, yeah. that, they have every right as a person who's a construction worker, a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, a, a priest, uh, uh, you know, whatever, a rabbi, a, a, a baseball player. Everybody has a voice. But what, what musicians do or songwriters do and did so well in the 1960s and 70s specifically is yes. write those songs to get us to think for ourselves about how we can, as Gandhi said, be the change we want to see. We are the change we want to seek. We are the peace that we seek. We are the love that we seek. We have to become it in order to make it happen. It is not an exterior thing. It is an interior thing, mm. right? And, you know, another song that comes to mind um, here is, is the, you know, is the come together. You know, um, here comes that old flat top, you know, um, he's grooving up slowly. The, the whole, the beat of it was very much, you know, wearing, you know, coming into it, the whole thing about it you know, is in an invitation for everybody just to simply come together. You know, we, we are, an orchestra has to have individual musicians and each one of those musicians need to really know their instrument, but they've also got to be willing to come without ego and harmoniously play together, right. which the Beatles did exceptionally well. Right. Even when they right. weren't getting along. They right. The music it's, is what, bo you know, bonded them. them. Yeah. Yeah. The, or as Tim Riley, the great uh, Beatles scholar told me, once they found that groove, yeah. they realized it was very rare. Right. And they better get back to it. Yes. And, I'm, you know, uh, Come Together is a very interesting uh, song to cite because John wrote it for Timothy Leary, who I think was either running for president or governor of New York or something. And he asked him to write him a when he was, he visited, when Timothy Leary visited John Yoko in Toronto for Bed and Peace, um, he asked him and John said, okay, and he wrote this thing. But of course, 
the whole Timothy Leary thing, as most Timothy Leary things, fell apart. <laughs> and John had this great song that he could again, like change is going to come, make it a general mm-hmm. message of let's all come together, which yes. again was as much needed to be heard <laughs> and was a number one song in America, just like Hey Jude in 1969, as much as Hey Jude with all the war and assassinations and riots in the streets was needed in 1968. So the Beatles were able to give that even on a higher plane than some of the great folk singers. You know, Bob Dylan was certainly a contemporary, absolutely an influence, and in many ways superior, maybe, than the Beatles in connecting to the streets. Mm. But Dylan, except for like a Rolling Stone that made it to number two on the charts in 65, and I'm talking about chart success, but that is a reflection of popularity. How many ears can you get? How many souls can you change? Whenever you want to say, how many minds can you affect? Mm. Uh, The Beatles had, had that, had that soapbox yeah. they had that megaphone and and they used they did not abuse it and when it was misinterpreted like in the manson murders mm. the beatles were quick to say hey you know this is it, it's it's almost antithetical to what we're trying to say because anybody can take something you know what which and get misrepresent back to john. it well, well yeah. you're getting back to john mm. getting back to mark david chapman's misinterpretation of salinger's book and john's life to murder him mm-hmm. comes come in a very real way comes back to what we were talking about about how people can misinterpret yeah. or at least interpret in their own nefarious ways. Right. But the Beatles, and it seems so ironic that that the Manson thing would be around helter skelter, or that this maniac would shoot John in 1980 based on mm-hmm. these things. But if you're out there constantly giving, yes. I don't care if you're uh, you know Gandhi or Jesus or Che Guevara or Martin Luther King. It's, it sometimes will come back violently. I always say resistance is futile, but there are those that will resist um, and live in the pain and the anguish uh, because they won't take accountability for their own journey and their own process through it. And they've got to have someone to blame. They've got to have someone that's got to pay for their pain. And the more that somebody stands up there in that love and peace and we can do it together and you are the strength that you seek, to a person who cannot find that strength, doesn't want to find that strength, is riddled with the anger of God, somebody's got to pay for my pain. That, that is why they seek the person out that is speaking of the lovers within you. They don't want to know. They just want someone to pay for their pain. And of course, the great irony of that is that John admitted in 1980 that he was a violent youth, and he was. Mm-hmm. He would lash out with his fists, man, woman, child, mm-hmm. Uh, and he had a hard time relating to his son, Julian, we just talked about, and he would say to Paul, and I quoted in the book, I don't know how you do that. How do you play with my son? I don't, John didn't have the tools because as you said earlier, you know, he didn't have a father. His mother was, was quite a free spirit and she supported him artistically, but she couldn't handle him. So they right. farmed him off to aunt Mimi. And then she dies, his mom, as soon as he gets to kind of know her as a teenager. And he says, there's a lot of rage there for me and a lot of real pain, but but the fact that he was able to take that and change on his own accord over the years, it took many journeys and many avenues, whether it was drugs or Yoko or music or Elvis Presley or his relationship with Paul or, you know, or his veneration of Bob Dylan, whatever it was that, that, that John em- embraced, it was to try to get out of that cycle of violence. Yeah. And the great irony is that he was murdered violently. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, you know, one never knows, um, you know, what is going to happen. All you can do is just live each day 
and yes, tomorrow you know, never knows is John no, Rose. No, no, it is. <laughs> it is the you know the. If we are confused, if we're feeling kind of lost and lonely, if we don't know where our tribe is, if we want to try and make sense out of life, especially all the violence and the going backwards in time that's going on all around us, music is something to turn to. Yes. Because not only are the lyrics going to help you unravel and try and make sense, they will empower you to step out of the confusion into your own personal clarity, because really that's all you own. All your own is your own choices, um, your own interpretation of life, your own participation in life. This is what you own. And if you have that clarity, that inner clarity, then you know what to do in order to bring that clarity and peace in your life and read and resonate it out. Mm -hmm. But the music is one that most certainly is, is your, is your compass, is your guidance, yes. is, you know, is, is the poetry of our times, mm -hmm. is your friend, it's speaking to you personally, and it doesn't judge. Yeah, you, can, you can't say enough positive things to me in my life about music and what it's done for me. I can mark, I have touchstones and, 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 and uh, of maturation based on what music did for me, uh, woke me up for many, many different uh, portions of my life to get me forward. And, and I, and again, getting back to Hey Jude, for me, you know, a, a lot of people said, well, it's sort of an escapist song. He, he, he here's, here's Paul letting us exhale for seven minutes in 1968 with all these terrible things are happening. But then there was a few people who said, wait a minute, he's making us face what that cycle is. And I, I looked at it as, oh yeah, it's an escape song. All right. It's escaping this constant circle of enabling yes. this behavior. You could move this out into a forward motion. The movement you need is on your shoulder, which is a, a line that everybody always talks about. And we talk about it in three different parts of my book. And my good friend, Adam Dirt, who I do the podcast, you were kind enough to, uh, to mention, it's been, it's been a while for us since the pandemic, but we'll hope to get back to it. Adam you know, is, a, is a lead singer and songwriter for Counting Crows. And he said, well, the movement you need is on your shoulder. Well, your head's on your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's really not that good, you know, mysterious. But I, I love that, that, that people, that the idea that you can move forward yes. as opposed to, let's just listen to the song and forget that the world's on fire. Because as much as we love Change is Going to Come and we love Dylan and we love the Beatles and Come Together, songs cannot change the world in a physical level. You still need the civil rights movement. You still need the yes. civil rights act. You still need, you know, the, the, to defeat the Nazis, you know, the, yeah. the, there's action that needs to be done. But I think what music does is it allows us to, to framework that. Right. And for me, it's the greatest framework. When you talk about the poetry of our times, I do look at it as both uh, sonic poetry and quite literal poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it is that, uh, I, I, I'm, I have been known to suffer through depression and music is, is the way to bring me back. Uh, again, it resets my equilibrium. It, it lifts me up. It takes me away. Uh, and this brings me to the song of yesterday. You know, yesterday, all my trouble seems so far away. Now it looks like they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. And suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. And then, of course, why did she have to go talking about a love loss? But, we're, you know, we could be talking about that song in many ways. And I think right now there's a big reflection to the yesterdays. 
you know, we, we used to have peace or we used to have respect of one another. We used to have common decency. You know, where did it go? Why did it have to go? You know, um, can I get my yesterday back? Um, that would be my interpretation of the yesterday right now. What would be yours? Well, there's so much to pack, unpack there. Well said. A uh, couple of things. I'm reminded of Woody Allen's great film, uh, Midnight in Paris, in which the main mm. character is pining for the 1920s, which yes. I do. I do. You know, <laughs> it's a wonderful Hemingway, era. <laughs> Hemingway and Fitzgerald in, in Paris, yes. whooping it up and writing genius stuff and drinking cheap wine. Uh, it's very Beautifully romantic cinematography, cinematography there, yeah. Oh, gorgeous movie. Mm. But then he meets a woman that is in, in this 1920s milieu, and she is pining for the Belle Epoque. From, a, from, you know, back in the teens. Mm -hmm. And she's more interested in Toulouse-Lautrec and surrealism. And in a way, what Woody is saying there, and I think one of the characters actually do, is that there's this, there's this, this feeling of nostalgia to always make the past the better time. Right. But of course, you know, there was, you know, people always, when I was growing up in the 70s, they romanticized the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Happy days, you <laughs> yes. know, and... But the 1950s wasn't happy days if you're a woman or an African-American. Oh, God, no. no. Uh, yes. So, or you happen to be shipped off to Korea. So there's many, many aspects of it. Yeah. So, yes. But I think what Paul's doing on a personal level there, and that's the great thing about Yesterday and Hey Jude and all the Beatles songs, is that they, they, they marry the personal and the universal mm. so well, which is what art does yes. better than anything. Yeah. And when Paul says in an interview in his, in his 40s, because he wrote that song when he was 22, 23 years old, once again, shocking the way Joni Mitchell yeah. writes her song. And he says, you know, I think about it. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. Is about his mom. He lost his mm. mom when he was young. And he goes, I didn't realize. Yeah. I, that was still bothering me. My sub, one of, one of his biographers told me, Paul works the best when he works in his subconscious. He allows mm -hmm. that to come mm -hmm. in so we can work on our subconscious. And so yesterday yes! means <laughs> a lot of things. And that's why I, it, it, when you brought it up, it was so much, so much to unpack there. But yes, again, it's, just like an Eleanor Rigby or long, uh, you know, long and winding road, Paul is working with time. He does an incredible job, you know, discussing how the linear mind works mm. and then how to get outside the linear mind to see almost three dimensional the way we, you know, way we view life. I, I call him the knowingness artist, and I speak of knowingness a great deal. And knowingness is a when your soul is ignited, uh, you have the clarity and it ignites with the heart where the truth mm -hmm. is and it lifts up the spirit into action. The mind will know what it needs to know when it needs to know it. It's a form of channeling. It's a, a knowing, I know what I need to know. I don't need to know why I know it. Mm. Mm. And I think when you've got these kind of musicians and that comes through them, it's not a question of what they're writing or why they're writing. It just yeah. simply is. And yeah. it's there for that reason. It's what's needed to be known in that moment. It is the truth of that moment. And they, they, they got out of ego. They got out of mind. And they allowed that to come through them and just be. Right. That vulnerability again, which mm -hmm. I think you need to do to love and also be a great artist. And I struggle with that a lot as a writer. And it's one of the reasons why I always have this argument when people call me an artist. I really feel like I'm a craftsman. For me, the rubber hits the road. The great joy of what I do in nonfiction is the research, 
the interviews and I, and, I, and I try to let the book reveal itself to me as opposed to having a specific thesis, which of course you have to start off all ideas yeah. with. You have to pitch it to the publisher. You can't just say, I don't know where this is going, but give me money for it. Um, <laughs> but it changes every time because you have to allow yourself for those changes. So I, you know, because writing is the most solipsistic thing we could do. You're, you're a God in a way in your own world. You're creating this thing and you're trying to make arguments for what you're writing. You know, you're I wrote this entire book of essays about Warren Zevon's work, Accidentally Like a Martyr. And I did it, everyone asked me why. I did it because I love Warren Zevon's music so much and hardly anyone knows anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we tell our stories. Yes. Because we don't know anything about it. And, and I tried very hard not to be preachy in that book and say, you have to love this because <laughs> I love it. If you're not passionate about it. I, I could never understand how writers are ghostwriters for people they don't like. You get this all the time. I don't know, I took the money, but that guy, what a blowhard, or I couldn't believe his ideology or his philosophy or she or he or whatever you're writing about. Uh, it's such a difficult, I love doing it, but it's a difficult endeavor. It's very isolating, mm -hmm. a lot of discipline, long hours, questioning, questioning yourself. You know, the book just came out a month ago and I went through this terror of six weeks of, oh my God, what if I, have one piece that's wrong in there. They'll trash the whole book a year of my, two years of my life, you know, down the drain. That's what goes into your head. <laughs> well, that you is, yeah, that's it. the, that is the it. brain. That's the brain thing, yeah. right? That it's, yeah. it's the mind programming of that we perceive everyone's going to hate it before someone tells you that they love it. And uh, you've got to trust, you know, I'm sure the Beatles were like that with a song when it went out. Will people get it? You know, will, will it connect with them? And I'm sure every artist is like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, those that are ready to receive will receive. Those that aren't, they're not ready. Right. right? Yeah, well said. Yeah. I want to talk about a couple of your other books, actually. Um, Accidentally Like a Martyr. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that one. Yeah, again, I, I wrote, instead of doing a biography of Warren Zevon, I decided to write essays. Um, I'm an essayist at heart columnist. So I tried to write in thousand word, 2000 word uh, uh, in that construct. So I had written uh, an essay about his song, uh, Desperados Under the Eaves, which is, I think, is a wonderful allegory for alcoholism, loneliness, um, Los Angeles during the 1960s, uh, poverty, jealousy, um, self-loathing, <laughs> all those In other things. words, today's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so when I gave it to my editor at the time, Bernadette Malavaca, who, who did a fantastic job kind of getting me out of my, getting, pulling the book out of me, said, try another one, pick another song that you don't love as much and see. And so I realized in essence, the subtitle of that book is The Tortured Art of Warren Zevon. And I swear to you, I did not try to use the trope tortured artist. He just always said he had a really hard time fashioning songs. It really tortured him. Mm. So, and the songs have a tortured kind of feel to them, as I just mentioned mm. with Desperados under the years, the eaves, the very first word is desperado. Yes. Um, that uh, that his his biography, his his um, underlying existence as an artist are told through the songs. And his wife, his ex-wife, told me, You're doing great work here because all of us who knew Warren, his children, his friends, he didn't really come clean with a lot of us. We felt we learned more about him through his songs. So mm -hmm. I, it's a it's a collection of essays where I picked. 11 songs I thought really tell the story of, of his childhood, of his bout with alcoholism, of his occasional misogyny, of his um, proclivity towards violence or writing about violence, um, his Eastern European origins. I thought that would be a, his, his love of classical music. 
And uh, I think the, uh, a biography comes out because it reveals it. It's not a straight biography, yeah. but it's a way you can learn about a musical artist by studying the music. And I was, I was so tickled. I, I, I don't know if this woman, and the name escapes me, uh, had read my book or was turned on by it or whatever. Maybe we were, all, we were working in the same transom. But I just read this wonderful book. And again, I wish I could remember the title. Please try to look it up. It's about Beethoven. It's called, uh, the subtitle is, Beethoven's life in nine symphonies. So she took right. all nine symphonies and she broke each part yes, of his I've life Yes, I've heard down. about this. Yes. And it's just, I, I was just, I was like, ah, cool. Mm -hmm. Someone had the same idea. You're right. <laughs> you know? Yes, no, I have heard about that. I do have to look that up. Okay, shout it out loud. Yes, shout it out loud. Uh, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon is about a record that I loved when I was a kid called Destroyer by the band Kiss. Everyone knows Kiss, but they don't know maybe their individual work. And for years in music symposiums and in college and with fellow music nuts or nerds or geeks, as I like to call them, they would always say, what's the great rock albums of the 70s? They bring up rumors and Dark Side of the Moon, certainly, mm -hmm. and uh, you know some great works by Elvis Costello and, and the Ramones and, and, and of course McCartney and Lennon. But I'd always say, what about Kiss's Destroyer? What about that Destroyer record? I love that record. What? Kiss. <laughs> so once again, I yes. said, all right, then I'm going to dedicate. And that was a long one. That took me almost three years. And I, and I really the underlying joy for me, as I mentioned about the interviews, is I always loved the producer Bob Ezrin, Robert Allen Ezrin, who produced a lot of Alice Cooper's earlier work. Mm -hmm. He produced The Wall by Pink Floyd. He produced mm -hmm. Peter Gabriel's first record that has Salisbury Hill on it. And I always loved his work. I'd always say, I love this record. And then look, oh my God, Bob Ezrin produced it. And Bob worked in what he called the cinematic aura, oral cinema, A-U-R-A. And I thought, I'd love to describe this in word. Mm -hmm. I'd love to sit with Bob and have me, how he paints this amazing stories. Like Alice Cooper albums were like these little horror vignettes, mm -hmm. but in rock songs. And yes. as like an 11-year-old kid who loved horror movies and comic books, that was speaking <laughs> to me. And so this was like four of those things, you know? And yes. when Bob married up with Kiss to work on this Destroyer record and everything that came from it and how it described the over-the-top aspect of the 70s mm. and how we all used our, you know, with the, even the way, Sarah, and you know you remember this, we used to absorb music. We yeah. had to be sitting in a room. Yeah. This is this is before you, you had a cassette player in your car. Right. Before you had, you know, the Walkman or mm -hmm. CD player. You went in your room with a record, you put it on, you had the record album to stare at, but you used your imagination. Yes. To figure, you and, went and on the trip. The music you took you on. The trip. Yes. And, and Bob was great at that. So to be able to interview him and have me tell him, tell me his method, let me into the laboratory in a way right. so I could see how Willy Wonka is making the chocolate. <laughs> That was the beauty of that book. So I highly recommend it for people who want to know how magic is made in a studio in the 70s when they didn't have digital yes. or sound tools or sound effects. It's like when they made Star Wars, mm -hmm. which, which they made the same time he was making Des uh, Destroyer. They had to physically make these special effects. There was the creativity with the craftsmanship mm -hmm. with the idea. So, I mean, that's a long way to say it's a I love all my books, but that one really was a labor of love in the sense why I wanted to get out when we were kids growing up in the 70s, what how music fired our imaginations, really? Um, well, yes. I mean, I spent many, many a long hour just, you know, listening to music and getting lost and uh, tripping. You didn't need drugs. You just no. listened to music. You know, you trip to the music, right? <laughs> yes. And of course, I do want to say, I, I'm leaving out radio and people listening to radio. You know, it was the, uh, and I, I always get these names wrong. So please read my book because I want everyone that contributed. But the psychology professor, I think Professor Halpern, 
uh, from Baylor University told me, remember, Hey Jude is great because it popped out on all the radios and all the storefronts. Mm -hmm. So it was a communal experience how people observed yeah. it. Because back then, you know, age, Hey Jude was number one for nine weeks in America, longer than any Beatles song, which I was shocked to learn. Right. And it just, it absorbed America. So there was a communal experience to listen to that. But I mean, what I'm talking about is us running back home with our 45s or our LPs, putting them on the, on the record player or the stereo, and then putting the headphones on and just getting, as you said, lost in the trip of it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you write for my brother's site, hackwriters.com, my, my brother, Sam, and a little tip that you didn't know about him. Um, we moved to South Africa in 69. And I met this uh, British guy who actually had a couple, you know, turntable and wanted to start a mobile discotheque. I introduced him to my brother. So they started the first mobile discotheque. I then later with a boyfriend did a mobile discotheque and I was the first go-go dancer in South Africa before it became sleazy. And we played parties everywhere. We, we had, you know, like the, we had the speakers that looked like coffins and, you know, crates and crates and crates of oh, records. Yeah, the big ones, yeah. And, uh, but the thing is, is that when you played at these parties and you played all of these songs and everybody, you know, got into it. That was the beauty of it. Everybody got into it yes. and they would either sing along to it or you would see them really letting themselves go. Right. You know? And especially if you went to Canada, did a highfalutin party and they're all prim and proper. And then you put on a number and it's just like they transform into something else. Yes, it's very much a mass. It's yeah. very much a mass. And in the very in this, in the Pentecostal way, like down south in the African-American masses, where they just like, again, they're just, you know, I love the films of that of the mm -hmm. one guy on the piano and then the six people singing the choir and they're just dancing yes. and throwing yes. their hats in the air. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's what yeah. music does, man. Yeah, it, I mean, it completely and utterly ignites your soul. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, it just sets you free. Now you've got this one, Fear uh, No Art. What's that mm -hmm. about? Uh, well, that was just a fear. No art is funny because uh, speaking of Adam, that was one thing that connected the two of us. He had a t-shirt back then. It was a painting I saw, uh, and I never remember the artist in the eighties down in the East Village. It said, fear no art. And I thought, what a great idea. What a great thing that I, you know, I grew up on George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and all in the family, all these things that people were like, ooh, uh, changing mm. our way of thinking. Um, you know, and all the, the music that I listened to, uh, like an Alice Cooper, who I've gotten to know over the years and interviewed quite a few times. And Alice has never lets me down. I, I love him so much. The people who really challenged the status quo and made us think of things differently. So I just, I was going to name my, my column, which is called Reality Check, which, which Sam is nice enough to, to syndicate for his website, um, Fear No Art. But I didn't. So that's a collection of my original re reality checks from the end of the 20th century, 97 to 2000. So the subtitle of that is The Death of the American Century, not in the sense where it was dying. I Little did I know 9-11 was right around the corner, but mm -hmm. in a sense where it was, it was waning. And they would say, mm -hmm. you know, the 20th century was the American century and it was waning. And I was sort of observing that in my column. So I just wanted to call it Fear No Art because I just love that phrase. Yes. <laughs> now, this is a, a good one. I'll make, make sure I'm actually saying it right. Trailing mm -hmm. Jesus. Trailing Jesus. Uh, in 1996... Which, which turns out to be the 200th anniversary, technically, of the birth of the historical Jesus because the calendars were off. So Jesus was born in, uh, in four years, what they call BCE, which mm -hmm. is before the Common Era. Uh, and uh, I was also 33 years old, the year that Jesus died. And I was always fascinated as a kid when I, was a, I grew up a Catholic of, of the Jesus sacrifice story and the Jesus teaching story and how he was both a political figure, an egalitarian teacher, a social teacher, and he was executed for it. Mm 
-hmm. and beyond the religiosity of it. And I started studying about that in the early 90s. There was this great boon of Jesus, uh, the Jesus Seminar uh, and a lot of books about, uh, you know, Jesus scholarly pursuits of the historical Jesus versus the Christ of the Bible. Right. There's like a ton of these gospels that are uh, not part of the canon, mm. not accepted from the church. So I, I, I gathered all that information, studied for years, and then I went off to Israel for a month. And I and I I got a map, and this is before the internet and all that other mm-hmm. stuff. And went and started Paper in, maps, folks. They fold yes. on each other. <laughs> and I, I started in Bethlehem in Palestine, and I went all around the Galilee, and I spent a month, and ended up in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks. And I trailed the exact spots. I found what was apocryphal, what was real about the historical Jesus, in a geographical sense. And I use it as a what I call it a Holy Land journal. But I also talk about my sense of escaping. Uh, organized religion for a more spiritual, open aspect of understanding the world. Mm-hmm. And I look at Jesus as a revolutionary character in our and, and, and a historical figure, but also a, a revolutionary character, as I mentioned before, like a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi. Yes. Sense where the, it was forcing people to think about the world differently. And as we see in our world today, as you mentioned, people are very, very um, uh, against their, it's hard to change. Yes. And when you say to people, you know, it's always nice to understand, which I believe Jesus was, that God is out there and it's everything. But if you say to yourself, I, I possess the ability to be sacred. And when Jesus comes out of the desert and he's like, I'm God, in essence, he's teaching everyone else. There's a very overlooked line in one of the gospels that Jesus is telling the apostles, you guys can do this. You guys can heal. Yes. You guys can go out and do these things. And, you know, we, we tend to look at yeah. uh, Alan Watts, the great teacher said, when we look at the Jesus story, we're looking at it like, well, he's the he's the boss's son. How right. does that help me out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's ignoring the message that the Jesus exactly. was made. Yeah. So and I and I found I learned so much that so that really was about that. And also I learned so much about Mary Magdala of Magdala, mm-hmm. which we which is misinterpreted as Mary of Magdalene in the Gospels, in which Mary was one of the leaders. It was a feminist movement. She she bankrolled the Jesus movement, yet she's a completely expunged from that right. story. Very patriarchal. So uh, all of that stuff is in my book. Oh, that's and fascinating. Six years to write that thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, when we, when we, when we talk about the God, you know, it's, it, it isn't them or us, you know, we are all made out of particles of the universe, whether it's God, universe, spirit, whatever you wish to believe in, mm-hmm. we are all part of the same, whatever uh, you look at God as being, it is within you. All you have to do is ignite it. We're back there again. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other book do I have here? That quickly. Um, yes, this one is Midnight for Cinderella. Yeah, that was something I used to say in college. And everybody got a kick out of that because, of course, you know, midnight. She turned, you know, it turns the coach turns back into a pumpkin and she turns back into a pauper. Plus, it was always my mom's favorite thing as a kid. She used to always talk about the Cinderella story as sort of a, a story of hope, a story of, you know, not allowing other people to define you. And mm-hmm. knowing I don't like it as, again, a patriarchal story that she has to end up being saved by the prince. But that's very Disney-esque, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but I do yes. love the guide concept of Midnight for Cinderella. That was the last compendium I did. I did some more essay writing in that. But that is, again, my columns from after what you read in Fear No Art all the way to 2005. So it goes through the Iraq war. It goes through a couple of elections. It goes through a lot of social. I write about sports in there. So Midnight for Cinderella is a funny way. It's just a funny line that I used to say in college that used to make people laugh. Like when everything would go bad, I'd be like, well, it's Midnight for Cinderella. (laughs) (laughs) There's midnight somewhere for everyone, right? Right, like it's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's like, (laughs) what is this why book? 
Oh, wow. Thank you for asking. That is my only novel. Ah. The only fiction I've ever written. I decided, and I remember I was telling a woman this in a bar one night, and she said, that's very ambitious. I hope you do it. Uh, I wanted to write an adult version. And when I say adult, I'm not saying X-rated version. I'm saying <laughs> grown up. A, a, a grown-up, mature version of uh, of uh, one of my favorite books as a kid, Alice in Wonderland, or Alice mm-hmm. in the Looking, Looking Glass, which are often conflated, again, thanks to Disney. But um, the idea of using mathematical, poetic concepts to create movements. I didn't realize it at the time when I was writing this book in the late 90s. It didn't come out until uh, later on in the, uh, in the early teens. I think it came out in 2013, that um, I was writing about all these uh, uh, pop-up events that people have, artistic events that are, that are happening, that are not painting or, or poetry or something. They're just this thing that happens and then it goes away. Right. And, and, and it's really a book about what, how do we define art? Right. What is art? And so my wife and I always argue, and we had our greatest argument, which I loved on the banks of the Seine in Paris, where we, I was like, well, art is a two-way street. I make it, you react to it. Mm. Film, poetry, mm. song. And my wife's like, hey, art is you creating something and throwing it in the basement and it's still art. So I, I try to qualify that as saying that's creativity, but it has to be art. It needs the other side to react to it. See, she disagrees. Mm. I'm, I think, in the minority of that argument. <laughs> but I try to make that argument and why is what is art? But why what can't it, both of you be right? Because the yin and yang again, right? It's two, dis- two different yeah. sides of the story there, Thank right? You, so, Sarah. Uh, you. I mean, you know, art is waiting to be discovered. So maybe it's been in the basement there for a while, waiting to be discovered yes. so, that, so that it can be received. So, um, and, you know, every single one of us has the ability to express art in some way. You know, a lot of people, people when we talk about creativity, well, I'm not a writer, I'm not an artist, I'm not a singer or lyricist, I'm, I'm not this, so, you know, I've got no creativity. And funny enough, I did another show on creativity this week. And it is that creativity lies within each and every one of us. It's just discovering what it is. Right. A, a janitor in a, in a fancy building can be very creative of how he cleans. And now well, let's, let's be sure when you walk into that building, when it's clean, you've got a good uh, opinion of the CEO, right? Mm-hmm. If you walk into it and it's mucky and dirty and everything else, immediately, you know, the disdain for the company is there. So right. the creativity of the, of the janitor and how, you know, spit and polish, everybody has a role to play mm-hmm. and we can all be creative of it. Right. And the fact that, you know, it doesn't make the news or it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that, doesn't mean that it's not being creative and that you're not artistic in some way. Right, like fear no art, ignore, ignore no art or see the art in what you're saying. I, yes. I, this woman that used to be a friend of mine uh, or uh, was a girlfriend of a friend of mine and she, was, and she was like, I wish I could be creative like you guys, this, this group I had. And I, and I said, you're a great cook. I, I can't mm. make grilled cheese. That's an <laughs> art form. The culinary arts, they literally yes. call it the culinary yes. arts. Yes, yes. Exactly. Well, you know, my, my brother is a writer and, um, and you know, I love mm-hmm. his books and, and I love where his books take us because they're always multidimensional. They always take us on a different plane, which I absolutely love. And I started writing for him and I write very much as I speak lyrically very rhythmically, you know, mm. and, and he's the literary teacher and, you know, I'm not, I'm the out there person. <laughs> and he would start rewriting it. And I said, no, just correct you know, grammar and spelling, but don't change my format. And so he left it and would kind of be surprised of people reacting 
to hmm. my articles. Right. I don't understand why people are <laughs> commenting this because because I am speaking to what they're going through. Right. They're relating to me, right. right? Because I'm speaking in their language. So, you know, again, it's all up to interpretation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you inspire. And that's yeah. what you want to do when you put pen to paper. Inspiration begets invitation. When you're mm-hmm. inspired, you're invited to become a part of. I write to be read. I speak to probably half a dozen schools a year, um, sometimes less or more, depending. But I always say that first. Mm-hmm. I write to be read. Your editors will always tell you, if you're trying to say this, say it this way, because they're not going to get that. Right. It's in your head, but you need yeah. to get there. And you think in terms of, are they going to understand this? Are they going to be excited about Hey Jude? Are they going to be excited about Kiss? Are they going to be excited about the Jesus movement? How do I get that? You know, I, it, again, that's that subversion of song, getting yes. the message through. That's your job yes. to me as a writer. Right. You know, it, you have your interpretation. How do you make your interpretation um, clear enough that it isn't just the one person that's going to get it? But yes. others are going to get it from their different perspective. I'm a true colors coach, the four key personality traits. And even when I put out a, a show blog for people or write anything, I always try and make sure that I'm addressing all of those personality traits in some way or other. What are they? Um, you have, they're represented by colors, you know, orange, green, blue, and um, gold. But your gold, you know, they like um, the facts and figures. So let's say you're taking a building. You've got the blueprint. The orange person will have that blueprint. They've done the details, everything perfectly in line where it's going to be. They'll give it to the gold to uh, to build. They don't um, want the imagination of having to do anything. They'll build it and they'll build it solid. Right. And then you've got the the blue person that will create the the atmospheric interior of it Mm -hmm. that is invitational. Mm -hmm. And you have the the orange person that knows how to market it. That's cool. Right, so yeah, it's very cool. I thought and, you were going to say John George. Paul. <laughs> Actually, when you're looking at Star Trek, you're looking at the captain and Scotty and Spock and oh, yes. Doc. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're archetypes. <laughs> yes, they're archetypes. Yes, yeah, they're, exactly. Yeah. And for for me, it became quite a clarity when when I discovered those in 2001 uh, of kind of understanding who I was and why nobody got me because I'm a screaming blue. You know, uh-huh. I'm a screaming. I am the visionary. I can see. You know, the, the how everything can come together and create that atmosphere where people want to come to. And right. uh, and if you're talking to a goal, sometimes you know it's like <laughs> no, yes. they don't get it. So we have to bring in to whatever we do a little of the other people's language mm-hmm. so they can get it sure. right so true which is you know it can be difficult if you are you know person that is a particular foe but i think this is something that the beatles had it with with such and it'd be very interesting i would love to have done all of the colors to know what they are because yeah. they they really knew how to round it out that right. it made a complete picture. It's a mystical it bonding. It yeah. really is. And, and it didn't matter who was listening to it, which personality trait, everybody got something from it. Right. Yeah, it's true. And that's true artistry, isn't it? Mm, it really is. Yeah. This has been an absolute delight speaking with you. Absolutely. Um, I hope Same here. you send some articles over for our site as well. I'd love to, to um, see them there. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got all of these books. Did we did we cover them all? Or them oh, all? my first one, Deep Tank Jersey, had a 20th anniversary in 2016. So that came out. In 90. That was my first published book. And it's just a book about 
a, a musical act, a, a band here in New Jersey that never made it big. But there are people who make a living playing music that are not on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine or right. don't get on the radio. And uh, I wanted to tell their story and the stories of the people around them, like the roadies and the light men and the sound men, yes. and the groupies and the, yes. the bartenders. And yeah. it, it was it was a lot of fun. It, it's a, I'm it's glad, a real I'm glad that you've done that. Um, do you like Americana blues? Of course. OK, yeah. then I have somebody for you to listen to, Justin Johnson. I sure will. Um, I, a great I, surname. Yes, but I interviewed him some years ago. It was one of my favorite interviews because, again, he doesn't play music. He is music. And, mm. you know, he will somebody will make a, a guitar out of a spade or an oil can or car parts. Sure. And as long as they've got strings on it, he can make music. And when he plays, he, as I said, they merge. And a wonderful young man that goes into schools helping other kids how to put a guitar together and play mm. music. Really down to earth. But when he plays that music, you know, you know, when when your gut slightly tightens up when you listen yeah. to that music and yeah, it starts coming up and everything about you. Yeah, ah, he's one of those musicians. So mm. uh, if you ever get back to your podcast, it'd be a good one. For you. I, I will. I'm gonna, I, I got to go now, but I'm going to listen to it on the way on my ride. Yes, yes, I will actually send you the link before you go and highly <laughs> recommend it because he is just one of, you know, just a great guy. I, I love interviewing musicians. It's a guilty pleasure because they truly are, you know, their art, their truth. It's absolutely wonderful. And clearly you are too. Uh, the appreciation for the artist, which not many people do. Everybody has their own interpretation, but somebody who's dedicated their life to actually representing them and to actually speaking to the depth of who they are, not just the, the titillation of their music. Um, you know, thank you for doing that because you, you've become that, um, that support voice of they're more than just. Thank you. Right. So really thank you for that. that. Thank you for this discussion. I, I can't wait to listen back to it because I think at some point, I don't know what we were talking about. It just got so deep. <laughs> I'm going to listen back and go, why did you say that? No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Thank you so much. How do people get hold of your books and how did they get hold of you? And, you know, when your podcast come back up, how did they get hold of that? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, this, the podcast is Underwater Sunshine. It's on uh, it's Adam Duritz and myself, James Campion. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Music, all those things. My book is everywhere. If you want to order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, if you want to go into your local Target. I often tell people, go to your independent bookstores uh, and uh, they can always order it if it's not on the shelf. Uh, you can order it from jamescampion.com. All my books are there. I offer free shipping to the continental US. If you order it, I will sign it to you or a friend or whatever. I will autograph it directly to you. Uh, so all those things. I thank you so much, Sarah, for the time and for the promotion of my work. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when I... Um, my brother said, read this article. And I thought, I've got to post this article. I have to reach out to interview you. And, uh, you know, it's you. again, music is just so wonderful. I want more and more people to take it more seriously. Indeed. You know, definitely. But it is more than just something that picks you up in the moment. You yeah. know, look to the depth of it because it'll open up the depth within you. So thank you so much for sharing here today. I have truly and utterly completely enjoyed it. It's very nice meeting you, and it was great being on, Sarah. And say hello, Sam, for me. I will do. I will peace. do it. Peace, peace out, right? And until next time, folks, remember, it's up to us what we do with the music. But please let the music in, for it speaks to your heart and soul and spirit and ignites your mind to knowing what you need to know when you need to know it. Mm -hmm. Bye for now. Peace out and let it be. 
We hope that you enjoyed the show. Find all of our shows on selfdiscoverymedia.com under podcasts or selfdiscoverymedia slash shows. And for all our current shows, go to What's New. We are supported by you, the audience. You will see a nice big shiny blue button for one-time donations or follow us on Patreon and you will be able to support us there. We enjoy bringing you such wisdom. And the next show will be up in just a moment.